Hello and welcome to the Hard Tech Podcast. I'm Daniel Lapore. Today I'm joined by Alex Blom, co-founder and CEO of Applied Bioplastics. Alex, it's good to have you here. Thanks so much, Dan. Really appreciate the invite. Uh, yeah, let's get into it. Um, over the years, uh, we've seen the emergence of uh, plant-based plastic alternatives for packaging, medical applications, housing, construction, and other unusual applications, right? Can you paint a picture of what's going on here? Certainly. So this is a field that has had a lot of failure, um, and and you know it's it's a lot older than you might think. Uh, natural fiber composites, i.e., bioplastics, have been around since the 1960s when Mercedes tried to invent them as a uh, weight-saving measure uh, for their vehicles. Now. They couldn't preserve the cellulose in a way that kept it from rotting, so they ended up uh, abandoning the technology in the 1970s. But um, there have been multiple attempts since then. Um, you know, companies as large as Coke Industries have patented, uh, you know, fiber-based bioplastics. Um, you also have, you know, the traditional oil and plastic makers that are, you know, trying to use processed uh, uh, biomass to to make a number of different plastics, like you've said, from everything from packaging to medical devices uh, to you you know, just everyday objects. The problem with all of these in, in general is, is expense. Um, so, you know, it's very easy to use plastic, which is a byproduct of fuel production, uh, to, to, you know, once you've compounded that with uh, plasticizers, elasticizers, UV stabilizers, dyes, colorants, to use that plastic for basically everything. It's one of the most useful inventions of, of human history. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, the, the issue then is how do you do this better? And, and I think one thing that we could talk about is why should you do this better? Um, and and, and the, the reality is that, you know, it, 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 until recently, it's contributed about 7% of all human emissions. The, our plastic usage, it's, it's going up to about 20% of all human emissions. So we need to get a little better on that, right? If we, you know, if our goal is to save the planet, we need to, to reduce those emissions. So people have been turning to biomass for that reason, because biomass is inherently carbon negative. Uh, you know, plants, they, they uh, uh, export oxygen and import carbon dioxide. So that's a really good thing for the planet. And if you can utilize that rather than extractive things like oil, you know, theoretically, you can do good things uh, for the world. Now, there are problems. Um, the first one is that processing cellulose takes a lot of energy. In fact, more energy than it takes to process oil. Um, so you're already upside down on your on your CO2, on your power usage, um, the minute you start using things like hydrolysis or pyrolysis uh, to turn biomass into a plastic. The other problem is durability, right? The reason that plastic is so useful is it never goes away. <laughs> so, um, that's also one of the uh -huh. reasons why it's so harmful to the environment. But um, you know, if you need something to last a really long time, you make it out of plastic. Um, so how do you get biomass, which is inherently unstable and biological, uh, to mimic something that is permanent, right? So there's a lot of challenges with that. So there's there's a number of companies that have tried that. I'd say there's around 20 companies right now that are really in production and, and, and making different kinds of bioplastics, but they face a hurdle that everyone else uh, has, has already beaten in the plastic industry, which is price. This is a commodities market, right? So you cannot charge a green premium. You cannot charge a sustainability premium. You cannot, uh, you know, uh, you, you cannot get mass buying all over the world. And this is, this is a, a, you know, a commodity that's consumed all over the world. You can't get mass buying all over the world unless you can get down to commodity prices. So mm -hmm. that's really been the global challenge in adopting uh, bioplastics materials. And that's not even getting into disposal because theoretically we know how to dispose of normal petroleum-based plastic. 
That said, we do a really, really bad job of it. Like Mm -hmm. 95% of all plastics that are produced annually aren't recycled. They're landfilled or thrown in the ocean or burned, right? So this is a this is terrible. And so adding a new material into the mix, this biomass, um, you know, and and saying, hey, we're going to totally process this the right way, it's a fantasy, um, right? So anyone who's serious about sustainability is worried about bioplastics and the effects they may have on our environment. For instance, biodegradable plastics for packaging, they release methane. Right. When they break down, they release methane. Um, Now, this could be really useful if we capture that methane, we can use it for power. But there's no infrastructure for that. There's like 10 large scale methane digesters in the entire world, uh, which is what's necessary to capture that methane. Right. So if you're just using the general biodegradable that you throw in the trash, you're expecting it to go away in the landfill. You feel very sustainable about yourself because you're using this bioplastic rather Mm -hmm. than regular plastic. Well, it goes over to that landfill and it emits 18 times more harmful gas than carbon into the atmosphere. Right. So you're actually hurting the earth by using that particular kind of bioplastic. So there's consumer confusion, there's price challenges, there's infrastructure challenges, and there's disposal challenges for all types of plastic, including bioplastic. Hmm. I see. Good background there. Um, Before I go into more discussions about plant-based plastic alternatives, let's talk about your uh, experience in climate tech and uh, what you've been doing over the past few years. Certainly. Well, thank you. So, um, you know, Applied Bioplastics was started in uh, June of 2019, officially started working on it about six months prior. So we're almost five years old, uh, started by myself um, and and my co-founder, Colin Ardern. Um, you know, we are... We're a bioplastics company that that has a couple different uh, uh, feet in a couple different areas. So um, as we'll talk about later, we do make a um, a handmade uh, uh, building composite uh, for the purpose of refugee and transitional shelters. Um, we also make an injection moldable, uh, uh, durable thermoplastic that's a competitor to polypropylene, polyethylene, uh, PVC, and ABS eventually. Um, but, you know, it's also a, a biocomposite, right? So um, we've been doing this, like I said, for almost five years. Um, we have uh, 24 employees at this stage, and uh, we're currently raising our seed round of financing, which is a $5 million round on a $20 million valuation. That's 24 employees already? Already 24 employees, yeah. That's that's impressive. And you, you're doing a bunch of things. Like you said, we're going to get into like the, the technical stuff very uh, uh, in a few minutes. But um, uh, you and I were discussing off-camera about uh, your vision for $1,200 uh, housing shelters. I'm very, very intrigued by that, and I just wanted to talk about that like right now. Um, so anyway, $1,200 uh, housing shelters made out of plant-based plastic. What does this entail in terms of function and durability? Certainly. So so function and durability are, are a great place to start. Um, you know, Based on our advanced aging testing, our uh, biocomposites, which you can see here behind us, the tall square, um, is, um, is, is about 70 years. Uh, that's the service life. Um, now, the other cool thing about them is um, just like your windshield with an, a resin injector, you can repair this stuff. Um, so it's intended to be repaired. It's intended to be reused. Um, you know, it takes screws, uh, which means instead of like nailing or gluing it to something, you can you can put it on and take it off later if you need to. Um, and it also packs flat. So you know, theoretically, in in the case of a disaster, you deploy this housing quickly onto pre-built frames. Um, you undeploy it when it's no longer needed, and you store it. 
um, so that you can deploy it again for the next disaster, which, as we all know, uh, the climate disasters are ramping up. I mean, you know, this is timely. We just saw Maui burn, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lose most of its housing yeah. and stuff like that. Were we scaled and ready to help, we could have, you know, deployed out and gotten those people shelter in short order, right? Um, and, you know, we're in talks with several governments for that very purpose, right? So um, they can flat pack it, they can store it ahead of time, um, and then deploy it out when, say, a hurricane hits or a wildfire, an earthquake. Um, and this reduces excess death um, because you're giving people a roof over their heads. People die mm-hmm. of exposure and disasters. And by housing them quickly, um, you can prevent that, right? So um, that's that's one p- uh, piece of it. The, the next piece of it is talking about um, housing in uh, developing nations, right? Um, you know, with a lack of choice, uh, you see people using harmful materials, which obviously isn't their fault. They need shelter, um, right? So mm-hmm. they're using things like corrugated tin, which corrodes and you know uh, infects groundwater with rust and other things like that. It's terrible for the environment, but it's what's available, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's an affordability crisis for materials, um, as we all know. There's there's also a um, you know the dynamic where we're shipping. Uh, large pieces of material uh, transoceanically, right? Like we're, we're, you know, getting lumber from Canada and sending it across mm-hmm. the Pacific or the Atlantic to build stuff. And that's really dumb. Um, <laughs> like from a carbon perspective and a cost yeah. perspective, it makes no sense. But, you know, the way that, um, that the world works today, um, it, it seems cheaper on its face, but it's really costing us a lot. So the, the solution to this is locally made materials. The problem with locally made materials is most places don't have the infrastructure to make the materials. Like, think of Bangladesh. They don't have a lot of forestry out mm-hmm. there, right? They're not cutting down their trees. They shouldn't be cutting down their trees. In fact, we should be avoiding that as much as possible. But they don't make their structures out of, out of wood, um, like you know, places where timber is plentiful. Um, so minus heavy, heavy manufacturing, how do these people get building materials? Uh, not efficiently is the answer mm-hmm. to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, so better board is interesting in that um, it's made with simple materials and it's made with simple techniques. So the, the core technology for applied bioplastics is that we have a, a compatibilizing uh, liquid. Um, I can't really talk too much about this because it is kind of our secret so- yeah. sauce, but basically what it does is it helps cellulose, which is a polymer um, and a, a hydro uh, a hydrophilic polymer in that it absorbs water um, and helps it turn into a hydrophobic polymer in that it rejects water. That water barrier thing is what has kept all bioplastics companies from successfully mating other polymers with cellulose. Mm-hmm. So by fixing that, we've now enabled the use of cellulose in durable polymer applications. So you don't need that if you're making a biodegradable thing because it's not going to last that long. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to build a house that lasts 70 years, you must have it. It's, yeah. it's not a question, right? So with that made, um, we provide that to governments, NGOs, and private companies who want to build shelters, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, essentially, this is uh, it's a hand layup method. I, I can teach you and your viewers how to make this right now. <laughs> essentially, right. you throw down your mold, which in this case is a piece of tin. Mm-hmm. You put down a piece of mylar plastic. You put down your locally woven cloth. Um, now, locally woven cloth can be anything, uh, rough spun, burlap, um, anything that's really easy to weave by hand, as long as it's cellulose and as long as it's like at least 
somewhat tightly woven, mm -hmm. you've got your base material. So you put that in the mold, you spray it with our compatibilizing chemical, and then you paint it with thermoset resin. Now, thermoset resin, just as a quick aside, is what goes into fiberglass, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a polyester, you know, petroleum-based uh, thermoset resin, which means it has an exothermic or hot reaction when you expose it to air. Right? Yeah. So you put that on, you do a couple more layers of that. So you've got a total of three layers. You close your mold, you wait one hour, you've got a wall. Mm -hmm. It's ready to be deployed in mm -hmm. an hour, right? And I, I hope you notice I didn't uh, mention any specialized equipment, nope. no water, no power, uh, you know, not even specially trained people like you and your viewers now know how to make this mm -hmm. material. Um, you know, maybe not the exact steps, but, but the, you know, general idea of how to do this stuff. So it's super low tech. And, and the reason that's important is the United Nations has said that cottage industry is the most important way to bring up, to help. Uh, people in developing nations, right? Mm -hmm. You could do this with a heat press. It would require a lot fewer people. Mm -hmm. um, it would happen a bit faster, um, but you'd be cutting off access for all of these people to to you know get jobs mm -hmm. in helping improve their communities. So yeah. this is where we get into the economics of Better Board is we're intentionally doing it the low-tech way in order to help as many people as possible. Yeah. So this this basically takes aid dollars that come into a disaster situation. Yeah. It gives those aid dollars to the local farmers for their agricultural products. It also goes to the local weavers who will weave that agricultural product into the rough spun cloth we need. Those aid dollars will also go to the people who are making the composite by hand. So you're essentially creating or embiggening three different industries in the host community or the local community um, and producing inexpensive housing. Right. Yeah. So this is around a dollar a square foot. We're seeing based on fiber prices in the area, we're seeing prices for the whole house between one and two thousand dollars. Now, that's a bit more expensive than normal shelters. You know, normal shelters are going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, polyester uh, uh, like sheet stretched over treated bamboo. <laughs> um, and that's really cheap. Like you can build a house for about eight hundred dollars with that. So ours are more expensive. Problem is. That polyester sheet is like a millimeter thick. It tears, it breaks, yeah. it flies off when there's heavy winds. Um, and now you don't have a shelter anymore. That's yeah. <laughs> kind of a problem. Um, so our stuff is much heavier uh, than that. Um, it, it doesn't blow off in wind. Um, in fact, at our uh, pilot uh, refugee facility in Bangladesh, ours, uh, our housing survived two cyclones back to back. Um, did not move an inch. Uh, while everything else around it got flattened. Hmm. Um, so the point here is, yes, it's a little bit more expensive at the the forefront, um, but then it lasts 70 years, so you don't need yeah. to buy it again. You can also pack it up and redeploy it. So um, again, it's it's um, it's much more durable and thus much more cost-effective. Wow. That's uh, a lot to unpack from what you just said uh, about the 12, you know, $1,000 to $2,000 houses. And I'm just thinking, I was thinking as you were talking about, about uh, what's going on in in Hawaii, in Maui. Yeah, yeah. And how, I think there are more than 100 people dead now. Yeah. And and a 1,000 missing. A 1,000 missing. So if, I don't know how many houses have been destroyed, but with with this technology, with the, with, the, with the material that you have, you could restore the area that has been burnt down to, to um to a state in which people can actually live until they can build, you know, rebuild their houses. It's not going to be like an ordinary shelter, like you said, that just right. gets damaged with any slight weather conditions, right? Uh, 
It gives people something to do, too. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Like, um, people don't really think about the psychological aspect of being a refugee or being a disaster victim. But, like, you're sitting there, you're sitting on your hands, right? Like, you're, you're waiting for the aid people to come. Right. Um, you know, you're picking through oh. the rubble. There's not much to do. Um, mm. and, and it sucks. Like, the powerlessness is something that I think um, really traumatizes people, that they, they're unable to assist in their own situation. Um, and yeah. because this is low tech and because this is done by hand, you can get these people involved in saving themselves, yeah. right? It gives dignity back to people who've had everything taken from them, mm-hmm. um, and, and gives them a way to actually help their communities and brings in revenue, uh, for a community that's just been just slaughtered by disaster, right? I mean, you know, I think the estimates are Maui's going to lose like $10 billion a year in tourism, um, you know, until they, they, they rebuild, mm. right? This Technology would accelerate that rebuilding. Um, it would give these people purpose, um, you know, while they're waiting for things to get rebuilt in kind of the heavy construction way. Um, and it'll make them money in the meantime. And I think yeah. that's really important is that, like, you know, people don't like waiting for handouts. Making your own money is is the best. I mean, we're Americans, for Christ's sake. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. so, so getting them involved in saving themselves, I think, is, is both a psychological and an economic yeah. and a kind of a practical solution. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. It's yeah, you you're useful, and you can also make some money in the process. You can take care of yourself, uh, survive until everything is back to normal. Yep, I like it. Uh, that's assuming your technology, your your um, your product is ready to deploy, which is, is still. It's it's ready to deploy, but it's you know essentially when these things happen, it's it's tough to. Um, get involved immediately, right? Yeah. Um, especially when you have governments involved. Like, I'll give you an example. We, we've been building uh, these shelters in Bangladesh for four years. Mm-hmm. We just got the attention of a, a single, very small NGO two and a half years ago. Hmm. They then did a two-year-long study on our stuff. <laughs> um, and we've actually just literally a couple of days ago received our first purchase order from the United Nations, the United oh, wow. Nations itself. They don't interface with startups. So this is an enormous accomplishment yeah. for us. Congrats. Um, thank you. Thank you. But that's the, the, I guess what I'm saying is it, it takes forever, uh-huh. right? So the best way to get this stuff deployed ahead of time um, is to have those relationships with governments, NGOs, and private entities yeah. so that they already know what you have. And ideally, they pre-make the housing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a world where um, climate disasters are becoming increasingly frequent. Um, most of those types of disasters destroy housing, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about wildfires. We're talking about floods. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about, you know, tsunamis aren't a, a direct uh, thing, but, you know, it's, it, you know, hurricanes, right? Um, all of these things destroy our communities, but more importantly, they destroy the structures that our communities are built around. So yeah. having something pre-made and ready to go, knowing that that is a risk, yeah. Uh, for every coastal community, for every riverside community, for every island community, you should have this stuff ready, right? Yeah. And that's our goal as a company is is to get you know governments involved before the disaster happens. Yeah. Unfortunately, governments are really bad at that. Um, they're like, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll totally prep ahead of time. Nope, nope, the disaster just happened. Oops, uh, we're not ready. You know, yeah. so so hopefully, um, you know, we'll be listened to, and hopefully, we will get these governments prepared for these disasters and. You know, maybe we'll pre- prevent some excess death. Um, how how is that going within the United States in terms of poorly, poorly? really poorly? Um, you know, to be, to be honest with you, man, um, 
I've been told by a FEMA rep, Americans don't want to live in shacks. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> That's fine. You're going to call me in 10 years when Florida's underwater and you need to rehouse 80 million people. Yeah. Right? Like, like you will call. Yeah. Um, it may not be in time, but you will call. Um, and, you know, but there are other places where people, frankly, uh, in the government aren't so high up on their horse and they realize mm. that, you know, people need roofs. People just need roofs. Yeah. Like it doesn't really matter what they look like in these sorts of situations. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not saying that my composite is beautiful and makes like little McMansions or anything like that. It's a it's a shack, but it's got a door. Uh-huh. It's got windows. It's got a roof, um, and it's got space for you and your family to be safe from the elements. And that's what's important, right? Uh-huh. So um, the U.S. It's going to be years, I think, before they adopt anything of the sort. Uh, but other countries, we're working with 27 or 28 nations now um, who are interested in this composite. That's that's fantastic. So um, let's uh, segue into talk, uh, something that you mentioned earlier on about supporting uh, uh, agriculture in, in developing countries. So sure. let's talk about how your work supports eco-friendly agriculture in developing countries. Certainly. So, you know, one of the things about um, biomass is not all biomass is born the same. Right. Um, you know, we have farmers in Brazil, um, you know, clear cutting the Amazon rainforest to to make soy. Um, right. Because soy is uh, is more profitable than conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is bad biomass. Right. Um, it's it's you know, if if you use that kind of soy, you're a bad person, you're a bad company, like you're not helping. Right? Okay. Um, and uh, you're, you're actively destroying the lungs of the planet, like the Amazon produces most of the, the world's oxygen. Right. So clear cutting that is a really, really terrible idea that's going to have disastrous consequences down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, clear cutting forests in general is a bad idea, right? Because forests are the the best carbon traps that the planet has, right? So using wood fiber um, in general is is not uh, what you want to be doing. Now, in certain situations, um, it's it's ethical. In certain situations, it can be sustainable. And I will admit, you know, applied bioplastics does use wood fiber in certain situations. Um, now, let's move on to the, the actual good stuff that you want to use, right? So um, firstly, Everywhere there's humans, there's agriculture, right? We need our food. Um, And so everywhere there's agriculture, there's agricultural waste. Um, So I'm a big believer in the localization of commerce. Um, You know, one thing that capitalism did that is not awesome is uh, create these international supply chains where it might seem cheaper in the short term Mm -hmm. to buy something from across an ocean. In most cases, that's not really true. Um, you know, if you're con- if you're considering the carbon cost, mm-hmm. right? And you know, that's not built into financial calculations, but it really should be, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, if you're a business. You, you shouldn't really be thinking about just next quarter or just next year. You should be thinking about if, if you're responsible for your investors, you should be thinking about 20 years from now, mm-hmm. right? Like you should be thinking about how much risk am I putting my company in by harming the environment. And the answer is a lot. Now, it does take collective action between companies to, to do this. It can't just be one company saying, I'm going to be really responsible uh, because they're going to get outcompeted. But if every company is saying, hey, maybe it's time to start considering the cost of climate risk, um, then you start seeing less you know, intercontinental shipping, which we really need to, to slow down on. Anyways, so back to the biomass. Um, locally sourced biomass is king for us. Um, you know, shipping low bulk density cellulose long distances is a bad idea in general. Um, cost of, of dollars and both carbon, and you're just going to lose money on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, you know, 
any sort of fibrous, fast-growing biomass works for our processes, right? Both the, the housing and uh, the, the BioFi injection moldable plastic that we'll talk about later. Um, so what that means is that we get to pick where we buy it from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, if we want to make as a maximum profit, um, we will use invasive species. Why would we use invasive species? Well, we get paid to take it away. Oh. Right. It's a burden. It's a it's a problem. We're solving somebody's problem by disposing of it for them. Right. So we get a negative cost of goods on that biomass. Right. We're also helping socially and ecologically by getting rid of that biomass and putting it into a permanent form where it can no longer harm its local environment. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one choice we could make. Maximize profit by using invasive species. Um, the next choice that we could make is say we want to pick a winner economically. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, um, you know, you're going to probably think I'm crazy for this because, you know, I've got 20, 24 jobs depending on, you know, my and, and my, my leadership team survival. But I went to Ukraine recently uh-huh. uh, and, and you know, got a cruise missile shot in my direction. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I should and, be laughing at that. Yeah. No, it was, it was really fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, getting woke, woken up with an air raid alarm at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, you know, the reason I was there was we want to buy – the agricultural waste from Ukraine's enormous wheat industry um, and and export it to Poland where it can be processed um, and then sold into the the EU as a feedstock for durable bioplastics. Yeah. Um, so you can see the chain there, how everybody's winning in it. Um, but, but the key here is, again, by localizing that sourcing, uh, by saying, hey, I want to sell plastic in the EU. I need to get biomass from somewhere in the EU. EU. Right. I see. Let's pick someone who's either in the EU or next to the EU, yeah. right? And, you know, not to get into the politics of the situation, but I think there's a very clear, you know, black and white, right and wrong side of yeah. the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. And as a result, we want to support those farmers and help stabilize their economy by taking something that they would normally have to pay to dispose of mm-hmm. um, and turning it into a profit center for them, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what I mean by sustainable agriculture. Um when farmers are making food, they, they, they have to make food in the, in the way that we're all used to, right? Yeah. And that involves getting rid of their agricultural waste in basically one of two ways. One, uh, chop it up, leave it in the field, let it rot. That releases methane, which we talked about earlier, is 18 times more damaging yeah. than CO2. Or two, they burn it, right? Which releases CO2 and a lot of it, right? So neither of those options is particularly awesome. Um, there are some more responsible farmers or you know wealthier farmers who are able to pay disposal companies to come take it away from them. Um, but even so, whether you're talking about dollars or carbon, this is a cost center for the farmers. And we want to help them turn it into a profit center and also make their businesses more sustainable by consuming that waste, putting into plastic where it is going to stay for about 200 years, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's that's where we come in on the the, the sustainable agriculture side. Nice. Uh, speaking of Ukraine, uh, from an agricultural standpoint, isn't Ukraine uh, responsible for most of the wheat consumed in Europe? That is true. Yeah, that's, that's actually why we picked them is um, Polish and Ukrainian wheat feeds most of Europe. Um, and so there's a massive amount of biomass there. And, um, you know, something that's important with plastics in general is homogeneity or sameness, mm-hmm. right? So you don't want to be mixing a whole bunch of different types of agricultural waste together unless you have perfectly pro- proportioned homogenization, which is expensive, um, right? Yeah. But um, if I take Polish and Ukrainian wheat, which is mostly the same strain of wheat, mm-hmm. and I use that as a consistent feedstock for my plastics that I'm selling in Europe, 
I have no homogenization issues, essentially. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, there's a lot going on in Europe right now. Uh, the war and uh, and all of that stuff. But oh, um, crazy, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you've, you're a well-traveled person, right? You've been to many countries, oh, yeah. uh, typically countries with... Uh, with 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 need for help um in terms of uh, refugee support and things of that nature so you're very passionate about refugee issues and you even won an award in london for your documentary on, on the rohingya people of uh, myanmar yep right so what's the motivation behind uh, all of this traveling all the work you've done in developing countries all of the work we've done on refugee issues and and what are you currently working on in this space? Okay. Sure, absolutely. So um, I, I want to talk about why before why? I get into the work. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to give a little bit of my background, and, and I think it'll help explain the why. So, please, you know, please go ahead. I come from a family of brilliant people, absolutely brilliant people. Um, both of my parents are physicians. Um, you know, my grandmother and grandfather on one side of my family are Harvard-educated lawyers. Um, you know, nice. my, my grandmother was the second Jewish woman to matriculate into Harvard Law, uh, right behind Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually. <laughs> um, and they actually, both of them had classes with her. Um, you know, my, my grandfather was a very successful electrical engineer on the other side. Um, you know, there's a lot of accomplishment in, in my family. And, um, and I think that what that's given me is a, is a very privileged foundation on which to live my life. I went to private schools for the most part. Um, you know, I graduated from the University of Texas, which is a public school, but a very good public school. It is. Um, you know, and, and I've had more, I've thrown away more opportunities than most people ever get. Let's just put it that way. Uh -huh. um, and I have been successful um, in kind of standard commerce. Like I did uh, corporate and startup sales for, for nine years, right? I was very, very good at what I did. Um, my last year in sales, my, my base salary and on-target earnings added up to about $200,000. I made $1.4 million that year. I was really, really good at what I did. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it, I, I attribute a lot of that uh, to my education, to my upbringing, uh, to all the opportunities that I was given and then subsequently threw away. Um, so I started realizing that privilege comes with a debt um, mm -hmm. about 10 years ago. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was uh, at, at the University of Texas. I hadn't graduated yet. Um, and not to get too deep into politics, but a friend of a friend was, was literally lynched by the Austin Police Department in her jail cell wow. uh, after a, a ticket for a taillight. Her name was Sandra Bland. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. What year was that? That was, that was 2012. Yeah, um, yeah. And I remember that very clearly because I had never really seen the point of protesting before, but mm -hmm. that enraged me. Um, and, and, you know, something like that would never happen to someone like me. Right. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a white dude. I am cis and straight presenting, um, you know, that, that just, it opened my eyes that like, you know, I, I had lived in Houston and Austin my whole life. These are, you know, mixed cities, generally, um, pretty culturally diverse. Uh, generally the police are okay behaved. Um, and it just, it shocked me to my core and it got me out in the street for the first time. So, you know, I've, I've actually been a street activist for the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I realized that, you know, Yelling with a sign feels good, but it doesn't really change anything. Um, and, and you know, not to disparage protesters, like I said, I have been consistently out at protests multiple times a year 
for the last decade and still do this at, at the age of 33. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make things better, mm-hmm. right? Um, so something that started really, really small was uh, there was a dangerous intersection near where I lived um, and the city council didn't want to do anything about it. And it took me three years of petitioning. I even ran for office on this topic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for city council in North Austin. Um, and, you know, after three years, we, we got a stoplight there. And there haven't been accidents at that intersection anymore. And that felt so freaking good, Dan. Mm-hmm. Like to make just a small difference, just keeping people from getting into traffic accidents. Yeah. Um, but I realized that that's what I really wanted to do with my life. Like, you know, yeah, it was nice making lots of money in sales, but I just like it wasn't satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, even building a startup, right? Like building uh, somebody else's startup, really, um, you know, selling software for them. That was cool, but like, it didn't feel like I was like living up to the amount of debt that I carry mm-hmm. for my privilege. Um, and, and exercising that debt felt really good. So I, I wanted to, to go out and, and see what else I could do to, to change things. Now, um, in 2017, I got divorced. It was a little messy. Um, but, uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I got out of it pretty much unscathed and then immediately closed the largest deal of my life. Um, and which was really nice cause I didn't have to share the money. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the, the commission by itself was over half a million dollars. And, um, and, you know, at this point I was recently debt free. I was 27 years old. And I said to myself, you know, this is the opportunity. I don't really see a path to get out of software sales. I'll probably do this for the rest of my life. But this is one opportunity that I can have to go make a difference. And, not, you know, I, I don't feel like a debt, like a financial debt, but like, you know, I, it's, it's something that makes me feel whole when I help, yeah. right? Um, yeah. so I decided to donate all half a million dollars to charity at 27. Um, now looking at real estate up prices in Austin, I probably should put a down payment <laughs> on a house, but, um, you know, half a million dollars, half a million dollars, man. Um, and, and, you know, wow. as a 27 year old, I, I did not have a nest egg. Um, but I just felt really strongly that, that like, I wouldn't get another shot to make a difference. Like how often do you see a 27 year old with no wife, no kids, no house to pay off, um, just get handed half a million dollars and say, do whatever the heck you want with this. Yeah. Right. So I started looking for ways to, to help locally. And then it kind of like the, the view expanded. The first thing was that there's a, you know, a, a great food kitchen, um, here in Austin that, that helps the homeless. I anonymously, you know, wrote a check and I don't want to talk about who they are, or how much I gave them because uh, anonymous good deeds are, uh, have value around that. Well, but, you already uh, gave half a million dollars away. So yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I also you already put your money where your mouth is. Already. That's true. But I, yeah. you know, I, I come from a Jewish family, but I'm not like actually like super religious. Um, but I do mm-hmm. like some Jewish philosophy. And one of the things that I like about it is, um, there's the rankings of the mitzvah or the good deed. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, the you know, the, the Talmud says that the, um, the good deed that you do anonymously is the, the holiest or the best good deed you can do. Mm-hmm. The good deed that you scream about from the rooftop saying, look how cool I am. Like for instance, Bud Light donated, uh, you know, something like $10 million worth of water to Houston after they got hit by a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And then they spent a hundred million dollars advertising the fact that they donated $10 million worth of water. <laughs> right. Like I don't want to be that guy. So, yeah. so, um, you know, I'm going to keep some things under the vest, but anyways, the next thing I did was I, I started a group called the, 
Protecting Texas Families. Um, the full name is Protecting Texas Families from Preventable Violence, but that's like a mouthful, and I hate saying it. But anyways, um, essentially it was a middle-of-the-road gun bill um, that I got over 100 elected Republicans to agree to um, while just literally walking up to the Capitol on my lunch break for three months. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, I'm sure you can tell, I'm not a Republican, um, but I am Texan, and I grew mm-hmm. up here, so I can slip on and off my accent like a comfy jacket. <laughs> and um, and I talked to these guys and kind of made them feel like I was on their side and took them shooting and stuff like that and said, look, we, you know, there doesn't need to be one side or the other on, on guns. Like we all want our families to be safe. So let's, let's find a, a middle of the road solution, a a free five minute anonymous and, um, and optional background check for gun sellers to run on gun buyers. Um, and that way you can know if you're trying to sell your firearm, whether or not you're selling it to somebody who shouldn't have a gun, right? That's, that's it. Super simple. It doesn't infringe on the second amendment because it's optional. It just gives you a way, gives gun owners a way to sleep at night when they have, you know, a desire to sell their, their firearms. So that was something I spent a, a few months on and, and a significant amount of, of capital on. And then a buddy from college called me up and he said, Hey man, um, I heard you were doing like charity work. Um, there's something crazy happening in my home country of Bangladesh. A bunch of refugees just crossed the border. And I don't know why they would come here because Bangladesh is really overcrowded. It's really poor. Um, there's a lot of, you know, disease here. And, and so like whatever they're fleeing must be awful. Right. And, um, getting into kind of refugees in general, as I said, I've come from a Jewish family. Um, two thirds of my family died in the Holocaust. We are refugees. Uh Right. Um, and, and Jews have been kicked out of over a hundred countries. Right. So like basically professional refugees. (laughs) Um, and I wanted wanted to make a joke there, but (laughs) it might come out in in, in bad taste. Yeah. I was going to say, since you already said it, I was going to say it takes one to know one. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, and, and, and America yeah. is one of those places where, where we're supposed to welcome refugees, right? And, uh-huh. you know, lift the lamp beside the golden door kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. I've been really disappointed to see the rhetoric about immigrants here in the United States, but, um, you know, especially recently, because like, the reason we're so successful is everybody wants to come live here, and the, the most talented, smartest people come here and make the inventions that change the world, uh-huh. right? Um, and so, you know, Valuing refugees is important. Um, you know, it's not just people fleeing; it's 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 opportunity, right? Um, yeah. It's opportunity for your nation. So I was really impressed when when my friend told me that Bangladesh, this this country that's barely scraping by, took in two and a half million refugees in two weeks. Never asked questions. Didn't try to keep them out. Didn't mm. build fences or walls or borders. They let them in. What percentage of the, of the country's population is that? Uh, Bangladesh has 186 million people in the size of South Carolina. So oh. it's not a huge like percentage, but it's almost, it's about what? 2% ish. It's about, about, yeah. 2% in a country that is, it's 3000 people per square kilometer, hmm. 3000 human beings per square, square kilometer. kilometer. Yeah. So it's already very extremely populated. There yeah. are very few places in Bangladesh that could be considered rural. Um, like, you know, Dhaka, Bangladesh, the capital city is one of the largest metropolises on earth. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's like something like 20 million people there. Um, and, and everybody else is sort of spread out, but, um, you know, in giant apartment blocks where they're all living on top of one another. So for them to take in two and a half million refugees without complaint or, or, or hesitation was really, really impressive and touching to me. And I said, I want to go see this with my own eyes. Um, so I booked a flight. Um, and I flew out to Bangladesh. I ended up being the first American with boots on the ground in this crisis. Um, and I realized very quickly when I got there that like, 
I wasn't going to be able to help these people. <laughs> I wasn't. I had a quarter million dollars left over, and there were two and a half million refugees. What am I going to do? Hand everybody a dime and say good luck? You know, like, yeah. like that's not going to work, right? So I couldn't do any sort of direct financial aid, um, and I didn't really know anything about um, refugees or humanitarian work. Like, I'd never been in this sector before. Um, so, you know, if you're listening, you're probably thinking to yourself, what a monumentally egotistical thing to do to go over there and think that you could help. And it was. It was. Um, but uh, I improvised. Um, I got there. I realized that I couldn't really directly help these people. So I decided that the best way for me to spend my money on them was to try to help the rest of the world understand what was happening there. Mm. Um, because at the time... There had been one news story on this, and it was published in the Daily Star, which has a circulation of basically Bangladesh, parts of India, and like Malaysia, right? So like it's not international news, or it's barely international news yeah. that two and a half million people have fled Myanmar because they're being ethnically cleansed. Like the New oh. York Times didn't cover it, the Wall Street Journal didn't cover it, like none of the big newspapers were were covering it. So, you know, when I asked people when I returned from this initial trip, like, hey, have you heard of the Rohingya people? the hell is that is that like a soft drink <laughs> you know and um and and so you know i i, I hate the phrase raising awareness right mm -hmm. like I, I think when i think of that i think of like susan g Komen, where they spend like 80 or 90 percent of their their budget on fundraising mm -hmm. um and then most of the money doesn't actually go to cancer research so like that's what i associate with raising awareness so like i i felt relegated to to raising awareness i was a little upset that i was doing this yeah. um, but it seemed like the only thing that i could do to help so we hired 18 people um you know uh, my, my friend and i um hired one of bangladesh's best directors who was currently engaged in something else but i was able to you know pull him away from it um and we entered the world's largest refugee camp uh with a bunch of cameras uh, in about a week it took a week to just plan the plan the thing and we just went to see to, to shoot what we could shoot um, we also, uh, you know, crossed the border into Myanmar, uh, to get direct evidence of the killing. Once we realized, you know, once we had started interviewing the survivors, we understood that this was not just like a thing that had happened. It was a thing that was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the, the Burmese forces, you know, that's what the Myanmar people call themselves, um, were, were sweeping downwards towards Bangladesh, um, continuing to cleanse or genocide what was in front of them. Yeah. And so we figured we could probably get some direct footage of the killing happening or the, the burning happening. Um, so we crossed the border. Um, we got shot at a bunch um, <laughs> and had to run back across the border on foot and like pile into a bus while we were under small arms fire. One of our drones was actually shot down uh, with, with small arms fire. Yeah. Um, but uh, no one, was it an unmanned drone? Like it was an unmanned drone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It was just a, it was like a GoPro. I forget what the model was, but uh -huh. it's like it's a two foot long drone with like a quad rotors. Uh -huh. um, I got a little greedy. We, we had some great shots of, and, and this sounds really morbid to call it great shots of killing but i mean we were you know three four hundred feet in the air over a village that was being like actively burned down wow. and and i got greedy with the shot thankfully we were streaming it back to the base but um mm -hmm. and so we did we were able to recover most of the footage but um but yeah they noticed it on station mm -hmm. above the village that they were burning down and started shooting at it and and successfully mm -hmm. shot it down with small arms fire but um anyways um so we we made this film um i ended up writing it i ended up narrating it um you know uh, it's called Blossoms from Ash. It's available on DocuBay, uh, which is a subsidiary of Amazon. Uh, that film won uh, Best Short Documentary at the uh, 
London, uh, there, there was some London film festival. I can't actually remember the name of it. Um, and then it also won a much more major award. It won um, the World Fest International's Remy Award in Houston, where it got yeah. noticed by a distributor who purchased it and sold it to Amazon. So it's, uh-huh. it's there now. But um, yeah, that was um, that was how I ended up over there. That's how I ended up making the film. Um, I feel very lucky that I was able to find the crew that I was because I had no idea what the heck I was doing, man. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and you know while I was there, um, I had been trying to raise funds for the film so I wouldn't be the only funder of the film. Yeah. Turns out I'm really bad at begging for money. I'm good at sales, but I'm really bad at begging for money. So yeah. I was unsuccessful at getting anybody else to support the film. However, I did attend a, a dinner with like a bunch of Bangladeshi movers and shakers, and there was this man there uh, named Dr. Mubarak Khan. Um, now, Dr. Mubarak Khan is a former nuclear physicist. He had since retired after helping Bangladesh's nuclear commission build its first atomic plant um, and had spent his uh, retirement working on something that I found really interesting. So essentially, let me give a quick history lesson here. In the age of sale, the age of colonization, Mm -hmm. the British came to India and Bangladesh and needed a way to resupply their overseas empires. Um, In in, in particular, uh, their sailing ships needed rope and sackcloth and sails, Mm -hmm. right? And that's really hard to do on the wrong side of the world from where your shipyard is, Mm -hmm. right? So they forced essentially Bangladeshis and Indians to plant and grow a plant called jute. Now jute, it makes really good carpet backing, really good rope, sackcloth, and sails. Um, So when the British decolonized, this fiber remained a cornerstone of the Indian and Bangladeshi economies for about 20 years. Um, After 20 years, nylon got invented, womp, 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 Mm -hmm. Um, which totally outcompetes jute on basically every single measure. It is way more durable. It does not stain. It does not crush. Um, It doesn't tear easily. Um, And so jute went from a globally demanded commodity to not. Niche. At all. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe you you can find some reams of it online for like crafting projects and stuff like Uh that. Or like the, you know, the the live, laugh, love, uh, uh, you know, decoration (laughs) you can put up in your house. People like print that on burlap. That's usually made out of jute. But it's not a common material anymore. So this destroyed, sorry. So this destroyed the, um, the, the, you know, export economy of these parts of Indian Bangladesh that typically grew this. Um, and for Bangladesh, this was the majority of their export basket, mm-hmm. right? So it plunged a already poor nation into additional poverty. Now, Dr. Mm. Khan saw this and said, you know, this isn't as useless as everybody's making it out to be. This cellulose is some of the strongest cellulose there is. Couldn't it be used for other stuff? Mm-hmm. And so he applied his genius and his years of, of chemistry and, and um, you know, nuclear science to figuring out how to make jute useful again and thus reinvigorate the Bangladeshi export economy. So he was working on a number of different things. Um, he invited me to his laboratory. He showed me what he had been working on. He had some water-soluble grocery bags, which I thought was cool, but, you know, far too expensive to produce to compete with, um, mm-hmm. with, with uh, you know, traditional poly bags, um, a injection moldable plastic, which was in a very rudimentary form, but was it was interesting. Um, and lastly, a fully mature product, which is sitting between us right here. Yeah. Um, he called it jutin, i.e. jute tin, yeah. because it's a replacement for that corrugated tin. Um, and it's made, like we, we were talking about earlier, out of woven jute. Yeah. Um, so I thought this was amazing. 
So I said to him, where is this deployed? Uh-huh. And uh, because it's amazing and I want to see it in action. Um, and he said, well, nowhere. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's fine. Um, but like, how long have you had it for? And he says, 20 years. And I was like, what is wrong with you, Dr. Khan? Like, this is a miracle material. And you've had it sitting on your shelf for 20 years. And he's like, well, I'm a chemist, not a salesman. And I said, well, I'm a salesman, not a chemist. Sell it to me, please. And it took about six months of convincing, but he did eventually sell me that IP and join as the first non-founder employee of Applied Bioplastics. So Ah. the original intent of this business was to commercialize Dr. Khan's fully mature idea of plant-based, simple, rudimentary housing. Wow. <laughs> this is a very complete story. You start, <laughs> like, you, all the way from, uh, you know, uh, your background, wanting to help people, actually putting your money where your mouth is, uh, traveling, trying to help the people, uh, the, the refugees who had uh, relocated to Bangladesh, and... Um, this is incredible. This is really incredible. Okay, so it, it, that that that's good. It's awesome. But I, I now I'm actually very interested in something we've discussed before uh, about about your approach to employee retention uh, at Applied Bioplastics, Certainly. right? And it seems like everything about what you do, you know, you tend to carry that I care for people attitude. I I want to help people, you know, attitude. Yeah. It, it applies to basically everything you do, right? In the tech space, uh, you see a lot of people either changing jobs every year or every two years or getting fired. Look at what, what's happened over the past few months where tech companies are just laying off people. But you have an international team of 24 people and hardly anyone has left. Or Has anyone left we've, in we've five years? One resignation in five years. Wow. Um, one. And that was a a mutual parting of ways. It was a a scientist who does primarily R&D. We'd finished the R&D aspect of what we were working on. And and so he wanted to move on to a firm that was doing more R&D. And we replaced him with a commercialization engineer, which was kind of the plan all along. Um, So it wasn't a surprise. I mean, you know, of course, missed the guy because he was with us for for four years. But, um, but, uh, you know, regardless, yeah, I mean... Look, I, I have talked a little bit about my philosophies. Um, I think from a, like a spiritual perspective, the, the place where I start is um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu's definition of the word Ubuntu. Uh-huh. Um, and I actually have a Ubuntu tattoo, and I, like a lot of people actually uh, uh, confuse it for like a Linux. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, okay. but, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I have a you know a tattoo across my breast here that um, that is you know the, the, it's a visual concept of uh, the the concept of Ubuntu, which is that um, you know my humanity um, and and the way I treat myself is is bound up in yours and how I treat you. Mm. Um, right. So if I abuse you, I'm abusing myself. I'm abusing every human. Right. It's sort of like how there's, you know, people say like there's there's uh, no liberation till every human is free. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I believe that. Right. So this is, you know, not to get too political about it, but, um, you know, and I don't want to be one of those people who's like a business is a family. No, a business is trading labor for money. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. 
We're trading labor for money. You're, right yeah. now, you and I are sitting here. We're trading our labor for money, um, and and you know maybe we're getting some other things out of doing this here together. But but at its most basic level, you and and your crew here in the studio, we're trading labor for money, mm-hmm. and you can't forget that as an employer, mm-hmm. right? Your employees owe you nothing. And I think that the labor force is starting to wake up and realize that. That's why you see people jumping jobs all the time, is mm-hmm. that they don't owe you crap. Um, and, and you know, this this idea that you can, like, say, oh, we're building something super important. And in our case, we really are building something that I think is super important. Mm-hmm. And it helps us recruit. Like, people come, want to work for us because we're building something that's super important to yeah. them personally, right? Um, which I think helps with retention as well. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, even even my last business, like I'll call them out, it's, it's uh, Thousand Eyes, uh, sold the Cisco for a couple billion dollars, uh, it's network monitoring software. We're told in these all hands, we're building something that will change the world. Mm-hmm. And I believed it, and I believe it now. They have a great product. Um, but the point is, though, that you're, you're expecting your employees to see this bigger picture uh, of, oh, well, you know, we're going to change the world of networking. So? (laughs) Who cares? Can I afford my bills? Right? And I think a lot of these startups, they they say, you know, come work for us to get this great experience. Come work for us to help change the world. Come work for us for this, that, and the other reason. They forget that you're exchanging labor for capital. Yeah. Right? And so we try to remember that. As a, as a business, we don't ask people to take pay cuts because uh, the business is struggling. When the business struggles, when we're running out of, out of money, you know what gets, gets cut? It's my salary, <laughs> my co-founder's salary, my other C-suite member's salary. We cut that to zero, and we pay everybody else on time. We don't make excuses, mm-hmm. right, because they're trading labor for capital. Yeah. Right. So that's that's the most important concept to remember. And and the other thing is that these are human beings, not cogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, I believe in the efficiency of a relaxed person. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're not under pressure, if you're not stressed and pulling your hair out, if your boss is not all over you, you're generally more productive. Now, if you're an adult, right? If you're, yeah, yeah. If you're you know, new to the workforce or, or you know, you, you don't really know what you're doing and, you know, you think you can slack off all day, you know, you're probably not the right fit for my company. But we have an extensive interview process to weed those kind of pe- people out. Yeah. Um, but we hire adults who get their work done. Mm-hmm. We don't have them clock in or clock out. Okay. We don't do shifts. Um, we are project-based. We assign them, hey, I need you to get this done by this date. And then we don't check on them. And then they turn their, their work in by that date. Um, and that's it. Like there's, there's no micromanagement. There's no real management. We have a board on, we use a monday.com as our CRM um, that has like a, you know, progress board sort of thing. So everybody's working towards completing projects. But, you know, other than maybe say monthly check-ins, we don't micromanage these people. We mm-hmm. let them get their work done on their own pace. And like different people work differently, right? Like some people are really productive between 8 and 10 a.m. and then not productive again until 4 p.m., right? Yeah. Um, that's just the way people are. And if I force somebody to work 8 to 5 when they're productive 8 to 10 and 4 to 10, mm-hmm. like p.m., right? Um, then I'm not getting maximum productivity out of my employee. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting the, the highest value for my dollar and salary. Right. So by letting them be adults and set their own schedule, they are able to work in the way that makes them most productive. Um, We also require up to, I'm sorry, not up to, we require 20 uh, days off per year, uh, 20 work days off per per year. So that's one month. 
we also require them to take off for federal and local elections. Um, so you get the whole day off. Anytime there's an election in your local precinct or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you must take that day off. You don't have to vote, but we encourage you to. Mm-hmm. We want you to participate in the democracy that you're a part of. Right. Yeah. So um, the other thing is, like, you know, you got to go to the DMV. You got to go pick up the dry cleaning. Yeah. You, you have a child care emergency, right? If you're on shift and you're being micromanaged and your boss is up your butt about it, then like you're not going to want to stay, yeah. right? Um, but on the other side, like let me give another proof point here. Five of my employees have gotten married. Four of them have had babies mm-hmm. while working at an early stage startup. That seems risky, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But they know that we're there for them. Mm-hmm. They know that you know when they have a child care emergency, their kid gets sick. They get to have time off, mm-hmm. right? They get to go be with their family. And the result here is, again, like one resignation due to literally just a company changing stages, mm-hmm. right? Um, we've fired two people for misbehavior, and that's it, mm-hmm. right? And and so we get to keep in all five of this. Years. In five years. And in we get a, to keep all this tri- tribal knowledge in, yeah. right? And that's really important because, you know, we have trade secrets. We have all these things. Like, in order to understand how we do what we do at a technical uh-huh. level— it would take years of study. True, These people who've worked with, with us for five years have done those five years of study through mm-hmm. practical work. Mm-hmm. Losing one of them would be horrible for the company, <laughs> right? So treating them like human beings, remembering that we're trading labor for capital or, yeah. or capital for labor and, and letting them set their own schedules not only keeps my business efficient, um, it enables me to to pay people well without being like exorbitant, so it keeps mm-hmm. my burn rate low, um, and and I get to keep all of that tribal knowledge in the tribe, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a much more effective way than like oh let me hire a hundred salespeople and then fire eighty of them because I realize that none of them are hitting their quota like that yeah. doesn't work. Man. Yeah. Anyways, you think this is going to work really well at scale? I do, I do, and you know, partially I have the privilege of a business that's never truly going to scale. Yeah. Um, so to understand what we do at a core level, we're not manufacturing any of these plastics that we've been talking about today. Yeah. And we haven't even gotten to BioFi yet, but um, I, I hope we will. Um, essentially, we create intellectual property. Mm-hmm. We create techniques mm-hmm. for marrying cellulose to other pa- plastics. Yeah. And, and so we sell those techniques and we sell the uh, valorized or readied agricultural waste, mm-hmm. um, and and so you know, there, but there's not a lot, whole lot of staff that goes into that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're going to open up a total of three rapid production facilities uh, that are that will do prototyping for new polymers, right? There's yeah. going to be one in Poland, one in India, and one in the United States. Um, those are going to be staffed by up to five people, right? Mm. Um, we'll have a small sales force. We have two right now. It'll probably be a maximum of 10. Um, our executive team will largely stay the same size. Our legal team might expand a little bit, but like, that's it, man. Like yeah. max number of employees for us is probably 50 and we can shift an entire industry with 50 people. So yeah. I don't know if it would work for a big like business like Facebook or something like that, but it works for us. No, I mean, you, you got me thinking a little bit about where we're going as a, as a, as an economy, right? Mm. Right now, with AI and um, and other automation uh, uh, systems, right? Yeah. You need fewer and fewer people to get tasks done. So it, there are a lot of companies now that, you know, be, I, I can imagine that a lot of $100 million companies, billion-dollar companies have very few employees, right? Yeah. And they could adopt your system since and, and, and keep your companies growing and getting stronger since, you know, it's easier to apply something like this to uh, 
you know, a thousand employees or less. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how it would work with those larger companies. Um, I think that, um, you know, I have the privilege of getting to personally interview every single person. Yeah. That I hire, yeah. So I was thinking right? is that is that by the time you get to thousands of employees, then you're handing over. Scalable. Yeah. You're handing over the philosophy to people who you, you've seen how many companies die when the founders leave, like yeah. leave. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost the same thing. Like whenever you start having like thousands of employees, then. <clears throat> The passion you have be, be behind, you know, employee treatment and all that might not be easily transferable to, Absolutely not. to the yeah. next line managers or something like that. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be our biggest challenge is if we ever get to the stage where I need to be hiring middle managers and I don't get to talk to every single hire, um, like how is that going to scale? Yeah. And and this actually gets us into an interesting point, which I don't think was on our on our schedule to talk about, but I, I do want to talk about that. And, and it's... Yeah. Um, it's preparing the business for my absence. Yeah. Um, you know, I am, you know, you, you see me here, I've got my, I've got my cane, I've got my, my knee brace. Um, you know, yeah. I am, I'm a disabled person now. I wasn't when I started the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a early onset, super aggressive psoriatic arthritis, which means my um, immune system is eating my own bones. Mm. I've had two hip replacements. I'm 33 years old. Um, I will have probably both of my knees replaced within the next five years. And then after that, maybe five to 10 years on, I'll be in a wheelchair. I don't expect to live past 60. Um, and you know, because of this disorder now we can talk about, you know, the philosophy that comes from that here in a minute. But, um, but one of the most, the the things that I'm most concerned about is preserving the legacy of this business. Um, I think if private equity were to come in and acquire our company, they would cut the housing division like the next day <laughs> because we sell these houses as close to cost as humanly possible, uh-huh. right? It's not a profit center for us. We're not trying to make money on, off of refugees. In fact, our profits from the thermoplastic side of the business are supposed to subsidize uh, the, the housing as well. Uh-huh. We can still be wildly profitable on that plastic because again, we're just making IP. We're not doing the manufacturing. We get paid licensing and we don't have to establish capital equipment, right? Yeah. So essentially we can be, you know, at like an 80 or, or 90% profit margin mm-hmm. on, on this IP, which is fabulous for us and fabulous for our investors. But capitalism is all about optimization, yeah. right? So if somebody were to take over the company, they'd say, hey, that housing thing's not really making a whole lot of money. Let's cut it, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I've been thinking about things like splitting up the company eventually, mm-hmm. right? Making the, the acquirable part, the BioFi part, its own entity, and making and protecting the housing, um, under my own brand, uh, like Consequential, uh, mm-hmm. which I don't think we've talked about yet, but I, I have my own kind of house brand. It's called Consequential.co. You can go see all my projects there online. Um, but you know, maybe moving the housing under that brand mm-hmm. uh, to keep it from getting shut down by, you know, frankly, private equity vultures that that are looking to maximize the profit on their new investment. Yeah. Right? Um, so, the other thing I wanted to talk about with the with the disability and the knowing that my life is going to be shorter than everybody else. I I saw the look you gave me when I when I said that. I don't know if the camera picked it up, but it's um <laughs> it's um it's a look I get a lot. It, you know, it's pity, right? No, and no, 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 no. Yeah. Okay. So I was about to say that. Uh, you are 33. You're talking about, oh, you might not live beyond 60s. 27 years mm-hmm. for a lot of things to change. True. Yeah. Medicine like, could, could uh, advance, but I could also step in front of a bus walking out of the studio. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Well, well, that's that's different. But, uh, you know, I, I like to believe in possibilities, right? I sure. may sure. uh, call me deluded or whatever, but like 
27 years to add another 27 years to your life. Sure. Yeah. That's what I believe. That was that was the look I was giving you. Like, uh, come on. <laughs> come sure. on. Have have more hope. Have sure. faith. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a very faithful guy, I have to say. I, mean, I, I try to be a pragmatist around the situation. I, I honestly think that this diagnosis and the like you know the giant handful of pills i have to take every morning i'm on cancer meds now um as as well as uh you know having multiple appliances in my mm-hmm. body um and you know the cancer meds help with the, the immune system stuff I, yeah i don't really know how it all works but anyways um it's reduced the number of things that i have to worry about believe it or not mm. um it makes day-to-day life harder like going up the stairs you know going to the bathroom all that kind of stuff's much harder yeah. uh, being a disabled person but um you know what it has done for me is it's shaved down the outcomes that i have to worry about mm-hmm. i'm not gonna have kids this has taken away my interest in in you know even adopting children i used to yeah. want to adopt um you know i i don't i would definitely not want to pass on my poor genetic mix to to some unsuspecting child so you know adoption was a thing but i don't think it is anymore and you know because i i won't be around enough to see all the awesome milestones that that a kid would would have and you know it just doesn't seem like the the way to go for me another thing is i don't have to worry about retirement Mm. i don't have to worry about saving for that like i see money as a tool anyways Mm. um i'm not trying to run up the score you know not trying to win capitalism yeah um but this even more so enables me to put what funds i get from running and eventually probably selling applied bioplastics towards what i care about which is charity which is refugees uh, which is improving the environment and and so i don't have to worry about who i'm leaving in my will i can spend every cent i make you know so there's 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 this clarity of focus that comes from knowing you're going to die younger than everybody else mm-hmm. um, that that I really appreciate. And I, 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 I don't want to say I'm grateful for being disabled. Obviously, I'd love to have the physical capability back. But looking for those silver linings, I feel like that's a pretty big one. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, I'm glad we spent a lot of time talking about uh, you and your motivations and your background. And, um, and you just talked about your, your disability and, and your plan for applied bioplastics based on that and uh that was nice that was nice to hear from you i'm still very i'm still a positive person i mean i'm the type of person that uh not to sound like uh indestructible or anything but i'm the type of person that would that would work even when i can't stand up yeah like i'll find a way to like uh i, I mean even even this last weekend i was so sick i couldn't get off my my bed but come monday morning at 7 a.m i was in the Drag office Drag yourself out yeah yeah i was like i sat down for 20 minutes and then i couldn't sit down anymore yeah. <laughs> you know i feel i feel exactly the same way i actually so, have both of these tattoos want, yeah. as a result of of going through this stuff yeah. they're both about perseverance yeah uh, the top one is gambaru which is japanese for stand fast yeah um and the second one is a quote from the ancient general hannibal uh, when he was faced with the Himalayan mountains, he had his, he had his uh, elephant army with him, right? And uh, yeah. his generals were like, how are we going to get over these mountains? And he says, invinium vium out fascium, which is Latin for I will find a way or I will make one. Yeah. And that was so badass and that inspired me so much. I, I, was, in, I was in Israel recently for, for business. I went to the world's oldest tattoo shop and got that done in Hebrew on my forearm. Hey, so I'm yeah. preaching to the choir, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's all good. Yeah. All right, let's, let's talk about... Uh, BioFi and yeah. BetterBoard. You brought both. You brought samples for both of them today, um, and uh, just talk about them briefly. I know we've mentioned them yeah, along yeah. the way. 
So Betterboard is the the large uh, you know rectangle here. Um, Betterboard is the handmade uh, refugee shelter. Um, it has an R value of thirty, which is a measure of insulation. So if yeah. you build houses, if you're a construction guy, if you're a construction materials guy, um, you know this is something you might want to think about, um, just because it's a you know high value product made with you know made very inexpensively. Um, it also has incredible fire retardant properties. Um, the United Nations just finished testing it last week. They yeah. ran a 2,000-degree Fahrenheit blowtorch on a square of better board mm-hmm. for two hours, and it did not catch fire. Wow. It actually outperformed steel on heat transfer. Um, so, like, the inside of the, the, the opposite side from the one that's being blowtorched mm-hmm. got hot slower than steel did. Mm. Um, so, it's really really good at insulation really really good at fire retardants and it's very inexpensive um some people really like the aesthetic personally i'm like i see burlap so, when i look at it one dollar per square foot is that what you said about a dollar a square foot yeah about a dollar a square foot yeah okay. exactly yeah. yeah i mean it depends on on what goes into it right so better board is a set of technologies um the one that's behind us is called jutin because it's made out of that jute, jute fiber yeah but there's also like hemp tin uh you know uh corn tin like there's a yeah. there's a bunch of different ones that you can do and they all have slightly different properties yeah. um but anyways so that's that's better board we've spent a lot of time talking about better board and the refugee shelters today yeah. so let's talk about biofi yeah. and i want to kind of fold biofi it, it, which is is a brand um there's there's tons of different grades of plastic underneath BioFi, just like there are tons of different types. Uh, and by the way, BioFi is the one inside of that jar. Yes, yeah, yeah the okay. the Erlenmeyer flask there. That um, that yeah. is uh, um, that is a polypropylene composite. That's one of the first ones we ever made. Uh, once we figured out how to do white. Now, white is a big challenge for for bioplastics because uh-huh. you're using generally brown biomass. Uh-huh. It's pretty hard without using a lot of industrial bleaches and terrible chemicals to make it white, but we managed to do that in a sustainable way. So yeah, it looks pretty white. Yeah. Okay. Um, so essentially, BioFi is, is also a set of technologies that um, is an umbrella over a bunch of different grades and types of plastic. Yeah. Um, now, BioFi is a mixture between cellulose biomass and normal plastic. Our goal is to reduce the amount of normal plastic as much as possible um, by improving our our, uh, adhesion techniques, improving our compatibilization, improving the techniques that are used to actually do the compounding itself. Today, the average use case is using 40 to 50% natural fiber and 40, sorry, 60 to, to 50% of, of normal petroleum-based plastic. We've made plastics as with as high as 80% natural fiber. Hmm. Um, and with that, you know, you're seeing around an 80 to 85% carbon reduction and an 80% to 85% microplastics end-of-life reduction. So that's the value there. That's why you want to buy BioFi is that it's you know, much, much greener um, on CO2 and end-of-life microplastics than any other plastic on Earth. Yeah. Um, the other bit here is um, that, uh, that, that you know, we are licensing BioFi to compounders. So let me just back up and make sure that our listeners understand the plastics value chain. Yeah. So I mentioned part of this earlier. Um, essentially, fuel companies like Shell, BP, um, you know, those, those types of companies, they make, you know, fuels. And plastic is a byproduct <laughs> of those fuels. Yeah. However, nobody uses the plastic that comes from Shell. Um, it's not put into anything that you use. Uh, what has to happen first is that it's compounded. Um, so it's compounded with other additives. So like 
plasticizers, elasticizers, UV stabilizers, colorants, dyes, um, tons of different things to change the physical properties of that plastic to make it useful. Mm -hmm. So there's a set of businesses that do this work called compounders. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a machine called a twin screw extruder, which you might imagine has two screws. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, uh, and that machine is what is used to, to make the plastics that go into all of these familiar items that you see every day. Um, toys, tools, technology, transportation components, your car dashboard, your phone case, your, your glasses frames. I mean, the headphones we're wearing on our head, all of this is the same type of plastic. It's durable petrochemical plastic. Right. Yeah. Um, then it goes to the injection molder, um, who makes the components for all the items I was just talking about by heating up those pellets and squirting them into a mold. Yeah. Um, and then once they're squirted into the mold, it comes out, it goes to the manufacturer who assembles all the pieces, packages it, markets it, and sells it uh, to you and me. Right. So that's the plastics value chain. Yeah. Where we go in is we've developed a set of technologies for the compounders. Right, the guys who are doing the mixing okay. uh, of the additives and the and the normal plastic. What we're saying to them is, hey, use less plastic, replace it, replace that mass with you know fifty to eighty percent of our treated biomass that we've prepared for you, um, and then use a particular technique and a particular screw for your twin screw extruder. Now, something to understand about those machines is the screws are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. So if you're a compounding business, one day you're doing a polypropylene run. So you use the polypropylene screw. The next day, you need to make a batch of polyethylene. So you take out the polypropylene screw and you put in the polyethylene screw. Mm -hmm. So Applied Bioplastics has developed a screw that makes the, uh, the natural fiber composite actually work. It disperses it better, uh, disperses the cellulose amongst the plastic, and creates a essentially a matrix inside that thermoplastic. Okay. The reason that's important is that matrix strengthens the plastic. Uh, so that it is, um, you know, comparable in strength to normal plastics, yeah. right? So we've developed the screw, we've developed a particular feeding technique, um, and we've developed the chemical treatment that's necessary and the physical treatment that's necessary to make the cellulose work in that compounder. Um, so we provide all of that to the compounder. We also help the compounder sell to the injection molder. So we, we help them with trials. We send engineers. We make sure that the trials go well. Um, and, and yeah, that's basically it. You know, what we want, what we want to do and what we're raising money to do is to vastly expand our portfolio of available plastics. I was talking about those rapid prototyping facilities when we were uh -huh. talking about staff earlier. Yeah. That's the purpose of those is there's hundreds of thousands of grades of plastic available on the market. Yeah. Applied Bioplastics currently offers 14 grades. Um, so we've got some work to do yeah. to help shift the whole industry. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the idea there is, is to create as many analogs of uh -huh. the existing plastic in the market using this cellulose as a base to replace as much of the plastic, the durable plastics market as possible with cellulose-based bioplastics. So you, without, without, and, and you're doing that without trying to overhaul the existing system or trying to change it or trying to educate people on how to do things differently. And that, that leads me into the next question is, um, most bioplastic companies in the past have failed. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, I know you, your background and your approach towards applied bioplastics is, is slightly different from a VC-backed startup, right? But it's still a company at the end of the day, right? It's still a startup at the end of the day. It is. So, so why, have these, why have companies in your space failed so much? And, 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 and how are you 
thriving? Are you doing so well? How are you avoiding these problems? Well, I wouldn't say we're doing so well. Um, we are we are hanging on, um, you know, and we're we're hey, making it work. Positive vibes. Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, we're making it work. But um, and and you know, look, the, there's three lies that bioplastics companies tell themselves, tell the market, and tell their investors. And those yeah. lies are why they fail. So let's go through the lies and 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 also uh, our rules that you know deal with those lies. So the the, the first lie is this. People will pay more for my plastic because it's more sustainable. Yeah. No, they will not. <laughs> This is a commodities market. Mm -hmm. The minute you're even 1% more expensive than the commodity, you've just cut 6 billion people on this planet out of using your product. Yeah. Most people buy what's available, not what's sustainable, not what's most expensive. They buy what's least expensive uh -huh. or they don't have a choice, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in many places, there's only one product that you can buy for any given use case, right? So um, the minute you charge a green premium, you've lost most of the market. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, unless you have a plan to get to commodity pricing, you're screwed. <laughs> you're, you're always irrevocably, irrevocably screwed. Like you're not going to fix that. And you're always going to remain a niche product. And if your business model is based around going big, you're going to lose mm -hmm. and you're going to go out of business, right? Um, the second lie that people tell themselves and their market and their investors is people are willing, companies are willing to swap out their capital equipment in order to use my plastic because yeah. it's more sustainable. No, they are not. <laughs> There are $500 billion worth of capital equipment deployed in the world today just for processing plastic in its current form. Wow. You think they're going to replace half a trillion dollars just because you're slightly more sustainable? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, um, and then the third lie is I can outscale the market. Well, I need specialized equipment to make my plastic, but nobody's willing to change their equipment, so I'm going to build it myself. <laughs> You're not going to outscale the market. Reminder, there's $500 billion worth of capital yeah. equipment that you're competing with. And oh, by the way, you already said that you're more expensive than everybody else. So how exactly uh -huh. do you plan on, on beating the market uh -huh. um, or outscaling the market? So in response, Applied Bioplastics has three rules. If, it's not, if it cannot be made less expensively than the commodity, uh -huh. we don't make it. If it cannot be made and used in the industry standard equipment, We don't make it. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, because instead of producing, we're licensing, we're removing ourselves as the bottleneck for global adoption rather than standing in the way. You know, most bioplastics companies go to their go to their uh, um, their VCs and say, "Hey, build me a factory, and I'll be able to scale from there." No, you won't. Mm -hmm. You won't. Running a factory is hard. Like you might be a brilliant chemist, right? And who's come up with a revolutionary new plastic, but do you know how to run a factory? Probably not, yeah. right? And and is it easy to you know hire somebody to do that when they've never seen your plastic before? No, mm -hmm. no it isn't, right? So you need to be either a prodigy who knows how to A, invent a new plastic and B, run a brand new factory that nobody's ever seen before and C, also know how to lead a successful business and scale it, which like how many people in the world are like that? You know what I mean? Like, I'm certainly not, right? So removing yourself as the bottleneck and making your technology accessible to the people who are already out there in the market and making it attractive to them by saying, hey, this is cheaper than the commodity. You can make more money on it. 
You must have all of those things or you are going to fail. And that's why so many bioplastics companies have failed and why I think applied bioplastics has a much higher chance for success than those others is we've, we've recognized what the market has repeatedly done wrong mm-hmm. and gone the opposite way. So you learned from the mistakes of others. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a cliche, cliche saying, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we could learn it the hard way. I mean, yeah. look, we, we're even doing work with, I'm going to leave these guys unnamed, but like they had everything. Mm-hmm. They had the natural fiber composite. It's not as good as ours, but it, they invented it 10 years ago. They should have taken over the world with it. Yeah. Um, they had trouble uh, getting compounders to even try it. So mm-hmm. they said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to build a bunch of equipment. So they raised $7 million. They built a bunch of equipment. Now they're just a compounder, just like any other compounder. They got sold for $100 million, which is a nice return on investment. Yeah. But, like, they could have taken over the world, man. This is a $380 billion a year business. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. It's $680 billion a year worth of, of durable plastic made um, in, in, you know, globally, right? And they got sold for $100 million when they had a technology that could have addressed the entire market. But instead, they built production capacity. Were they VC backed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were. That's 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 on that topic entirely. Yeah, but they, I mean, they still got their 10x return. It's a win for the VC, but they could have changed the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so that's the that's where that's where they and I diverge. A hundred million dollar exit would be an enormous disappointment to me. Yeah. You yeah. and I could get into a discussion as to why a company that makes $680 million exists in the first place. Is it to change the world really or to make that 10X return? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, honestly, man, like, like, think about my background for a second. I, I, I made a million and a half dollars in my last year of sales. I was 27 years old. I could have kept doing that. Uh-huh. I would have probably ended up with an income higher than most founders who've exited. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Like, this isn't about that's money. an that's an that income is already higher than a lot of exits. I know. Yeah. And so, like, and, and if I did that for another twenty years, that's it's good. Yeah. Good nest egg. Like, yeah. I'd probably be pretty dang fine. You know. Yeah. So the point here is that this was never about the money. Like, like mm-hmm. I told you earlier, that we started the company around refugee housing. Yeah. We stumbled on. In fact, I I'll, I'll tell the story here. Um, I was introduced to uh, Dr. Larry Dizal, um, who is the Lifetime Achievement Award winner in biocomposites. I showed him Betterboard, and he said, that's really cool, but it's useless. And I was like, what? Why? <laughs> and he's like, well, it's a thermoset resin, which means you once it's molded, you can't melt it down and remold it. So it'll never be used for manufacturing. And I was just like, oh, well, crap. Well, you know, yeah. like, like totally took the wind out of my sails. And he's, you know, he said, well, what would make it more useful? And he said, well, if it was a thermoplastic, not a thermoset plastic. And I said, well, I don't know what the difference is. So he's like, oh, my God. It's like, you're talking to the world's leading expert here, and you don't know the difference between <laughs> these two really simple things. Yeah. And, um, and he said, look, you know, let me teach you the difference. And, yeah, if you were able to translate one to the other, I mean, the, the other is a multi-billion dollar business. Yeah. But you need a magic wand to pull something like that off. And I was just like, well, will you help me? And he's just like, are you stupid? I just told you you'd need a magic wand, yeah. man. Like, no, I'm not going to help you. This is, you know, you're chasing, you're, you're, you're tilting at windmills. And I said, well, but like, what if we did though? Yeah. And like, it was just kind of a weird conversation. But like he, he eventually he was just like, you know what? 
you're just crazy enough to maybe figure this out. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and sign on as an advisor so that yeah. I can get some equity if you if you do figure <laughs> it out. And he ended up being instrumental in, in terms of the advice that we got to translate BetterBoard into BioFi. Yeah. So that's how BioFi was born. It was also by mistake, man. Like, yeah. like it, or just it wasn't. It, we didn't get into it thinking we were going to be selling thermoplastics, but um, you know now we're looking at the possibility of of being a you know more than a unicorn. Yeah, you just got to. Uh, I, I think with the UN contract, and you know, you've been in what several countries now. Yeah, uh, you're not that far off. But then you, you have to balance that with your original mission and the need for 10x. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> 10x returns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's the thing, man. With the the profit margins, once we really get going with the biofi manufacturing, the the 10x is not a hard thing to get to. Yeah, but then you you have to deal with some of the pressures, some of the growth, sure. aggressive growth requirements. And, sure. And just because a company is making 680 million dollars in revenue doesn't mean it's profitable. True. And, True. and that's probably why they sold for 100 million. You know, there are a lot of yeah. things that go into it, right? So, yeah. well. Uh, it's this has been a fascinating discussion and and i'm sure we didn't cover like everything but we covered so much and i've learned a lot about your humanity how much you love uh caring for people taking care of people including your employees and 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 the world in general and i've learned a lot uh, about uh, the mission behind applied bioplastics i've learned a lot about your life thank you for coming today Thank you so much, Dan, for the opportunity to talk about such a wide range of things. This is really a pleasure. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to reach out and you know, help support the mission? Yeah, I mean, if you're uh, if you're an investor, uh, obviously reach out directly to me, Alex at AppliedBioplastics.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn under Applied Bioplastics. Our Twitter is A Bioplastics, uh, and. Um, Lastly, if you're interested in my projects like my movie, uh, the nonprofit that I, I also run on the side, uh, you can visit me at consequential.co. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of the Hard Tech Podcast. I'll see you all on the next one. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share the video. Also, subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell so that you can stay up to date with the future of physical technologies relating to robotics, energy, healthcare, transportation, and more.